1: Welcome to another episode of Wagon Wheel, i forgot the name of the show there, I'm going to be honest with you, Wagon Wheel, I've got so many names and so many things, <laughs> where we take questions from people on Spotify Green Room, and so some of you will be in Spotify Green Room already, some of you will be watching this on YouTube, or listening on the Red Inca podcast, or wherever, I don't know, maybe you're just in my office at the moment, stalking me. Once again, a uh, big, big shout out to our sponsors, our Bodyline t-shirts, I've got the Imran Khan on today, and obviously Manscaped, huge thanks to them. Manscaped, is, this is going to sound weird, but depending on what sort of relationship you have with someone in your life, it could be a very good end of year kind of present situation. The Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. If maybe your, your friend or your father or your lover, whoever it is, is just a bit hairier down there, send them over to Manscaped. They're going to think it's weird until they use it and then they're going to like it. So if you want 20% off, use the code Reninka, all one word, and you can get yourself, we uh, you can get your friend's pubic region just as tidy as you've always wanted it to be. Big shout out to everyone on um, Patreon as well. And we also have Buy Me A Coffee now. I know there's a, some sort of payment issues in some countries with Patreon. If you can't do that and you just want to help out and support the show, Buy Me A Coffee is great. Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon. We're trying to build something here. You know, we're at two episodes a week for the podcast. We'd like to eventually get to three episodes a week. We've got other podcasts, obviously, Double Century, and there's another one I've been working on for quite a while. Uh, so if anyone can help out. And if you are a Patreon and you're on tier two, whatever it is, the non bottom tier, you get to ask some questions for every episode of this. Like Will has, where he is asked, given how dominant England have been in bilateral white ball cricket since 2015, is one win and one runner-up spot out of four tournaments an underachievement? No. I mean, yes, being that they've been the best team for a long period of time, um, I suppose, yes, but they've made semi finals twice, a final once, and and they've won a final. If Carlos Brathwaite mis-hits that first ball that other game, uh, is it completely different? I mean, that's that's the margins that you're talking about here. Um, uh, they could have won this game if they probably, you know, Well, at the very least, this game would have been completely different if they'd had their five frontline players available to them. Like, I, I haven't looked at the numbers yet, but I'm assuming they had more injuries in this tournament to almost certain first team players than most of the other major teams did combined. I mean, that feels right. Maybe I've just made that up off the top of my head, as I do. But, um, uh, but yeah, it, what I've said for a long time is you need to judge a team in a lim- these limited over formats on the consistency that they win. Um, the f- knockout games are a crapshoot. Um, I thought for a large period of that game yesterday, I thought England were either in the game or in control. Uh, and then... Um, Chris Jordan loses one particular over and and, and things go the other way. I, I don't know there's a way to legislate for that. I don't know if there's a better death bowler that Owen Morgan would have trusted more. Their main death bowler wasn't available. Um, obviously, Jew and the toss play a big role as well. Um, you know, Moeen Ali, I thought D- David Malan played a really good innings, but Moeen Ali, you kind of just expect him to score quicker than that as well, don't you? Um, in the same way, I suppose you would have with Daryl Mitchell, but uh, no, uh, I, I don't think it's a massive um, uh, underachievement, but I think at the same time they'll be like, "We've actually been really good at this for what is it now five, five and a half years, um, and one trophy is probably not enough." But if you would have if you would have said that oh, we're going to make the semifinals and uh, the final, you um, know, in, in four tournaments, I think a lot of their fans would have been like, "We'll we'll take that even without the World Cup win." So. Uh, I still think they're very good. The fact that they still played such good cricket in this tournament without their best team should be the real concern to everyone else out there. So I, rather than thinking of it as an underachievement, I'd be like, can can if you look at them compared to the West Indies, where the West Indies looks like they're going to have to rejig their entire team. England, if just their players are fit, they they could improve their team um, in the next tournament. I think that's a huge difference. Christopher says, how often do you think we should distance major international tournaments? Uh, how often do you think we should m- distance major international tournaments? Went through a stage of one T20 World Cup, Champions Trophy, World Cup every year, but now it seems to be a T20 every two years and ODI every four years. Um, I, I suppose what the, what they want to do is follow the sort of the football pattern. So uh, they want one major tournament every four years and one very marketable tournament you know, smaller tournament every two uh, in the years between those. Um, So then you will have, every two years, you will have a major, mini-major tournament. And that's kind of what they're trying to do. I mean, they tried to cancel a Champions Trophy about 83 times. It's still here. Uh, And then I think with the World T20, uh, they're not really sure what they're going to do. They haven't, because of the Olympics, as much as anything, they haven't quite worked out what they wanted to do. But a lot of the jamming of the recent... Um, uh, format with all these different tournaments is to do with the ICC trying to take control of cricket. So they needed to make a certain amount of money so that they were the people making the decisions. Um, And in order to do that, they basically had to make a lot more money for the boards. And so that is why um, the new CEO, who's now been fired for many different reasons. um, uh, That's why he was brought in. He was told, make us some money, get us some power back. And so, you know, the he, he tried to sell as much as he could um tried to jam as much as he could into a small window and i think that that's kind of what's happened so it's classic case of like every single answer on this podcast seems to be no one's running cricket in this case it's someone trying to run cricket and making things slightly worse but i think in a perfect perfect world you probably have you probably want the olympics to be the major form of the t20 tournament going forward um and you maybe maybe you have two knockouts T twenty tournaments, one you have uh, knockout ish. T twenty tournaments, one you have in the Olympics, and one you have in the um, uh, every two years in between. Um, and then you continue with the Champions Trophy. If, uh, the ICC feel they need that. I'm not a huge fan, but you can deal with it if you want. Um, maybe maybe make it slightly bigger. Um, you know, uh, and then uh, and then you uh, and you have the World Cup as your, your ODI World Cup as your main. Um, event for the ICC. That's probably the perfect situation, but whether that works commercially, um, politically, and all those sorts of things, uh, it gets a bit squidgy. Um, and, you know, look at the form, uh, look at the, <laughs> look at the fixtures. It's, it's very squidgy. Uh, Ian says, England have had a great white ball run for the last few years. How long before a re- big, rebuild isn't needed? 28, living, uh, 28, Liam Livingstone was the youngest player yesterday, with no other players under 30. I know fitness, nutrition, is extended careers. Um, Yeah, I think uh, one thing that's very clear is that England believe that experienced players are the key uh, in these tournaments. Um, You really want... I suppose Daryl Mitchell is a very good example of... Yeah, he's never opened before. Um, Yeah, his role in domestic cricket is probably batting number three, four or five um, and then um, hitting out against the spin a little bit and then bowling a few overs and New Zealand used it for something else but they used it for something else because he's a 30-year-old player with a lot of experience. And Sheldon Malik and Muhammad Afiz coming back into the Pakistan side is probably, I mean, partly because of their recent records, but I think also, again, teams tend to do that. Over the next little while, I could see that. Look, there's a lot of talent coming through in in English cricket. Uh, You know, you've got players like Parkinson and uh, uh, Pat Brown. Um, There's, you know, a whole host of young guys who whack it. Um, who are coming through? I don't think you need a savage rebuild. As I said, for the next World Cup, you could almost just take this team back. Um, but I do think that England have decided that senior players are part of their plan. So obviously, there will be players who will be moved on. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with players like Owen Morgan and Dawood Milan. Um, you know, uh, is uh, Moen Ali, I'm assuming, will be kept around. Adel Rashid, I still think he's just a better player than Matt Parkinson um, as it currently stands. Uh, but yeah, I think they will, they, they will certainly be thinking about that, but T20 wise, I'm not sure they'll worry about it as much. They might, it might be something they'll look at more for the one day um, stuff. They they might take off the champions trophy in inverted commas and not go as hard to try and get their team ready for the next one day world cup. But being that the next T20 tournament so close, I wouldn't think there'd be any, I don't think there's any reason for them to rebuild. Uh, Ramnath says, uh, "Do you think the captain should be a voting met- member in the selection committee to pick a squad at 15 um, for the World Cup, or does or does including a captain create conflict of interest as they could favour their friends and domestic teammates? Here's what my problem with the captaincy is: it's nothing about them favouring their friends or domestic teammates because that can't happen even for senior selectors. So the problem I think is how much cricket." outside of the actual international team does any captain get to watch they're not going to domestic games they're not seeing a teams they're you know they're uh, when when they're not playing because they're being rested they're probably not watching it as much or they're not focusing on it as much the the you know uh, it's if you're lebron james right I'm sure you have a say in the draft and and probably, and obviously he does with trades where he knows the players a little bit better, but there's still a reason why there is a general manager of those teams. And it's because the general manager has to go out and and do all the the due diligence and their scouting teams have to do it. And the coaches will come up with an idea. I really think that what you should be doing is coming up with the coach captain relationship where it's like, what form of cricket do you want to play? And the coach and the captain come up with that. And then the selectors slash high-performance manager, slash general managers, whatever those scouting teams, whatever you have and your, goes off and fills those spots. Says, well, this is what you want. This is the player we think is best at that. Um, and uh, we, you know, now we're willing to uh, try them out at the international level. Look, it's tough. I've seen captains in teams that I've worked with just not trust players because they haven't seen them before. But a lot of that comes down to communication, you know, uh, literally saying this is the guy that does this is what he does, right and this is what we have picked him for, and you now need to get him to do this in your particular team so there 's my first problem with captains and coaches not being involved with it I think the the other thing is that i I think they should be they should have a say in everything um and they certainly you know it, you see this in American sports a lot and, and um you know you'll you'll see a general manager pick a player and a coach won 't <laughs> use that particular player um that that's always going to happen. And the opposite also is going to happen where there might be a player that the entire organization or your entire cricket board thinks is better, but the captain is going with someone else. Um, And they won't be uh, of that quality and they won't have seen the other player and they won't understand the other player or they will have a personal history. I mean, players do have personal histories with all, you know, in positive and negative ways. Um, So I really don't, Think that that is the future of cricket. I think the future of cricket is communication and getting the captains completely on board with. Okay, w- what roles do we need to fill in this team? What style are we going to play? Um, how do we think that's going to work? That's where I think you need the captain involved. Um, I don't think you particularly need them in the very final decision-making process. Of course, eventually they're going to. If they're any good, they'll just become powerful enough that you know they'll Owen Morgan or the situation anyway, won't they? Um, you know, you go back to the LeBron James story from before, but um, I don't think that every single captain should have a say in selection. Um, and I don't think, oh, sorry, I sh- don't think every single captain should certainly be officially on the selection committee. And I don't think that every single captain should be the major voice in selection because I don't see how they could have seen that much. And um, they might even have a really good idea on how to play cricket. But if you've got someone else's job. Um, you know, maybe the coach or maybe the analyst or maybe the general manager or the high performance manager, whoever it is, who's watching all these different leagues to see different styles. They might come up with a better thing than the captain who's very focused on generally the 11 or 15 players in front of them. Uh, So thank you to Patreon. You can go across there if you want to get your questions across first, but there is a lot of questions in the chat. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles a hundred years before we put on helmets I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention But this is a generally true statement So that means as cricketers we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head And yet when so many of us shave our balls we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard While Manscaped are here to make sure, like the cricket box did a hundred years ago That our balls are completely looked after Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0 A stunning device that trims your pubes Like a delicate late cut Well, without the actual Cutting, I suppose And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say This is a shockingly good piece of kit And maybe this is for another time in the story But a man who has injured himself down there And had to go to hospital to get uh, the whole area Fixed I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping. Manscaped.com, Red Inca, you get it. Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. The first one is by Busker. You get it. Yeah,
2: So, Jared, my question was uh, regarding the context. We saw how Lendl Simmons played against South Africa where he got stuck and by Crick uh estimation, he scored minus 36 runs. So, this may happen to other teams in that way. So, do you think that in T20, the coach or the captain should be allowed to call back a player without his will and then substitute it if they think he's not
1: uh, batting at the right rate and uh,
2: rather than asking him to get out? They can,
1: can't they? Can't they retire a batter? Isn't that the prerogative of a captain? Am I wrong? I think that you can do that in the laws. Am I misremembering them?
2: Yeah, but it never happens, right? Like, you, really see, you see retired out in these warm-up games and stuff like that, but in, in real T20, that's not happening. And you have to be... that Even when you're retired, hurt, right? you have to take a permission from the opposition captain, right, for retiring hurt. It's not like you can...
1: No, no, no. You, you, retired hurts something different. Now you, I don't think you need permission from the opposition captain. The umpire's are involved in that. Um, no, retired out is what I'm talking about, um, which is which is a form of dismissal. Look, I, I can tell you why they don't do it more often, and it's because it's a wicket, retired out. Okay, so that's the first reason they don't do it, and that makes everyone nervous. Um, also, Karen Pollard was sick in one of these innings. I, I still don't know if it, was a ta- it wasn't a was a tactical thing for him. I'd love to get him on the podcast and ask if there was a little bit of tactics involved in that, and Kyron Pollard is one of the most... Wow, well, I mean, no one has played with the laws of cricket more in the last few years than Kyron Pollard. So if anyone was going to do it, it would be him. Um, but he might have just had a headache or, or a migraine or whatever it was and was struggling to see the ball as well. But watch what happened. It, let's say he did retire out, right, and he left the field. They lost a wicket straight away from a from a freak run out, which means that having a retired out means you can have two wickets straight away because a, a new batter to crease is always far more likely to go out than an uh, than a, a existing batter, right, you know, percentages-wise that's essentially why teams don't do it all right it's not the fear of the first wicket it's the fear that if we lose one or two after um we've gone from one down to four down um and that and that will change everything i still think it's going to happen i wonder if there won't be situations where there are more people pretending to have illnesses or injuries or whatever or whatever it may be um and i don't know how the mcc legislate that or or the icc going forward uh, with playing conditions but I do think it will happen, and the Lendl Simmons innings is a perfect example of that, of a player who uh, I, I don't think Lendl Simmons was ever going to be able to catch up um, in that particular innings. He, he, clearly they told him the to bat slow and bat through the innings, and then he just got stuck and couldn't get out of it, and couldn't, his backswing just looked like he couldn't time his, his backswing properly. So even when he was trying to hit the ball hard, he was like trying to just muscle it with no backswing. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, will it happen? Yes. Undoubtedly, um, going forward, it will happen. Um, but, it, you know, and I, th- I think it has happened. I don't think it's happened at the top level of, of T20 cricket, but I think it has level ha- But It's certainly happened in club cricket. People have told me about club games where it's happened. Um, I think it's happened in some uh, lower uh, T20 leagues as well. Um, uh, but it's a really, really tough one just because of uh, the wickets. Yeah. yeah so, sorry, okay.
2: Yeah, so I was thinking then, should it be allowed, uh, rather than being retired out, should tournament rules allow a place to like a capital to substitute a batsman like this you can do a bowling change
1: yeah i've, I've got no problem with that i think um uh, you probably need to m- maximize the amount of changes you could do um so you don't you don't want a you know ice hockey situation or um or an nfl situation um but uh, i think what you I, I think yeah being able to do that is i think it would improve the game i, re- I really do and um it'd be interesting to see how many batters might might voluntarily do that if it meant they weren't going to be out as well. Uh we might get openers with huge averages after on the end of that. Um but yeah when when the when the big bash brought in a lot of their rules I was just like honestly for me you know this is this is um something that that should be able to be done. Um I think uh I, I think that we have the ability with T20 cricket to do something that we've never been able to do with one-day cricket or test cricket. And I don't think we have to do with those formats. We just have the absolute best players going up against the absolute best players. So, you know, I one thing I liked about the potential of the 100, they didn't quite manage it. But, you know, if you've got Jason Berendorf in your team, he just bowls the first 15 balls, right? Um, And then you work out the rest of the game. Jason Berendorf. You know, it doesn't have to be him. It could be Son on Orion or whoever, whoever, whoever you think. But you just you start with that person. And then when the fielding restrictions change, change it up. And you bring in different kinds of batters and, uh, and you know, and different situations. You'll still find that, I think that, I know that the Lendl Simmons situation happens and has happened before. There's absolutely no doubt of that. A Jinki Rahane in 2016 uh, uh, World Cup is uh, probably another good example of that. But I still think when you drill down on it, My guess is that the expected strike rate of a batter um, who's out in the middle and has faced 20 balls is probably still going to be higher than most batters in your shed, right? Um, So that's where it gets... It's a little bit different with Lendl Simmons because he's got an incredibly low career strike rate and the guys behind him were, what, I don't know, Puran, Russell, Pollard, right? So in that particular case, um, you're just like... It's it's almost a no-brainer. But I can see, again... Um, you know, Lendl Simmons has had some very big tournaments. The reason he's in that team is he'd had some very fast scoring tournaments of recent times um, and he's a very good six hitter. So you've got a set batter who's in, who knows the pitch and those conditions, and you bring in a new player who's going to have to learn all that on the fly again. It's going to work sometimes and it's going to fail other times. And uh, it's a really, really interesting one going forward. But um, thank you very much for your question. Jimmy Boy, are you there? Hi, Jetter. How you doing? What's your question? So
3: I wanted to ask you about the expansion of the T20 World Cup to twenty teams in the twenty twenty-four. 2024. So your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I'm pro it. Look, associate cricket's never been stronger than it is right now. I think
3: Is it the ideal system with four groups of five teams each and then a super six stage and then seven panels and-
1: uh, look I'm not I, I'm not really a big fixtures guy, so that's not never gonna be my strength. Um I'd look at that sort of stuff. But this is a, a, a format of the game that we can expand cricket worldwide. We can get more more teams playing. So,
3: what about the quality of associates? Will the quality of the tournament go down?
1: Yes. Anytime time you bring more teams to a tournament, the quality of the tournament will go down. But is that what I mean? I've never really understood that argument because, like, a, it will go down in the short term, but in the in the long term, things will happen. It, put it this way: if we only pick teams that were any good in the 1970s, in 1975. Uh, we, mo- uh, West, in- uh, not West Indies, New Zealand had won, one test series by 1975, right? In their history. So you could have easily said, they don't need to be in that world cup. East Africa played in that world. No. Yeah. East Africa played in that world cup from that is obviously the Kenyan team who made the semifinals in 2003. Uh, from that World Cup is Sri Lanka, who was also not a test-playing nation. We're not particularly close to being a test-playing nation. I think is probably a realistic uh, way of looking at it. At that stage, they won the 1996 World Cup. Will we have a bunch of one-sided games? Possibly, although the statistics don't usually back that up that much. Uh, will, we have a, um, will we have some um, games where some players are clearly not up to international standard? Undoubtedly. Are we getting ourselves to a position where we can continue to grow and move forward the game internationally and we can get more players? Yes. We have Nepalese stars now, right? We have Afghanistan. Um, at one stage, people thought they were a legitimate chance for a semi final place in this tournament. You know, we are above the level of associates. I mean, they're Well, they're, they're a test playing nation. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, they were above the levels of Ireland, Scotland, Namibia. I mean, they're winning now. Well, li- like, li- like, li- Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, they've been bullying for a long time. They were bullying in 2015, um, all the associate teams. So that that's not particularly new. But Ireland is a test-playing nation. They didn't make the second tier of this tournament. Bangladesh scraped by, uh, you know, in, in this particular tournament. They lost to Scotland. You know, associate cricket's never been stronger. I don't think this tournament was a great example of that. But a lot of that had to do with COVID, I think, as well. A lot of the associate teams did not get to prepare. Papua New Guinea didn't particularly... The pitchers and the weather don't know as well. No, I, I think, no, I think that's, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of those teams, are, well, they, they, the teams actually qualified in the UAE. So it was ridiculous originally. They were going to qualify in the UAE and then you have to go to Australia and play, which makes no sense at all. All right. You shouldn't have a qualifying tournament in one kind of conditions and then have the tournament in another one. So no, no, I, I think the pitches and, and the conditions were favorable. I think, you know, you had uh, the, the Scottish players were, a lot of them were on furlough. Like um, a lot of them were, you know, I, a lot of them were struggling for money in that in that um, uh, in that COVID period. Netherlands were struggling for money. Papua New Guinea, Papua, Papua New Guinea couldn't travel around the world to play. Namibia again were segregated a little bit at a time that didn't really help them. Look, th- these th- these things aren't going to get better unless they continue to play. Also, that something else happened in 2018 where the ICC basically stopped funding the next tier of associates. So. Uh, Richard Doan, uh, who now works with uh, USA Cricket, um, he basically took over from Bob Walmer, and he's been, he's been the unofficial coach of all these associate teams for a long time, and he's made sure that they have analysts, that they have video, that they, ha- they know what the latest training stuff is, that you know that their players get experience, all these sorts of things. Richard Doan and, and the ICC really backed associate cricket, which is another reason why Ireland got better and Afghanistan got better and Scotland and Netherlands and Hong Kong. All these teams got better. is because of what the ICC was doing. Well, when I I talked about the first question at the start was about, you know, the scheduling of these tournaments. One of the things the ICC did was, is they took all that money away from the associates development, right? So you can't have it both ways. You can't suddenly put 20 teams in and not give them extra money to develop. There's no point. So when, when I worked with Scotland, I think this is true. I was kind of paid through like a grant that was given to Scottish cricket to have extra staff at a major event, Right. I wasn't. I don't think, I could be wrong with this, I don't think I was particularly paid for by, by out of Scottish money, although they gave me the money. I think that the, the money that Scotland got was through this grant, right? You need those sorts of people, not just at the major tournament, but well before the qualifying tournaments um, and, and the major tournaments to help the cricket grow, right? That's what you have to be able to do. And I think that um, there's no point just making it 20 teams and assuming that who would be the 20th team at the moment? It would be Singapore or Kenya? Kenya was so amateur. Uh, there's some quality cricketers there, but so amateur. Singapore, basically a bunch of club players and, and, and two incredible um, talents um, in the middle of all that. Uh, you have to support these teams better um, at the grassroots thing and get them to a level where they're at, least, uh, they're at least like a bad franchise team So when they get to these tournaments. So, yes, I think more teams should play, but we also have to make sure that we are looking after them going forward. But, Jimmy, thank you very much for your question. All right, who we got next? DJ. Hi Jared. Bunby done well Yeah, very well, what's your question mate?
4: Uh, firstly, really enjoyed your sub stack on the analysis of the New Zealand England game I for one did not have New Zealand winning at the 10 over mark And didn't know how to follow T20 games <laughs> anymore because they won in 19 <laughs> I wonder if Darren Mitchell would have retired out With the previous question there as well, like the way he was going mm-hmm. uh, It was really interesting my question is, uh, I want your thoughts on a crazy idea I had watching the World Cup and upsets and, and New Zealand beating England, etc. Why would the T20 uh, format, being such a volatile, high-risk format where upsets can happen, India can get knocked out, England can get knocked out, um, why would you not adopt a league format that runs throughout the year and give more meaning to bilateral T20s, which are going to happen anyway? You play across different formats, you don't worry about to you in and the UAE. You know, toss in conditions and all that. Like you play all around the world. Associated nations will travel and play these countries everywhere, get exposed to different you know environments, etc. I don't think any of them would have gone to Australia before the next World Cup, for example. And you just play like a league, and you get the best team that wins at the end of it broadcast people can get you know markets across the world instead of just uae you know which loses out australian viewers and new zealand viewers for example and just make it like a league and the t20 world cup the one day world cup can carry on the test championship can carry on in the background uh what's the flaw with this other than the fact that the icc likes world cups like,
1: it would be a lot less money going to a tv company and saying we've got a world cup and there's two weeks it's going to be much bigger than we've got a bilateral league and you know, the amount of people who are going to watch a New Zealand Sri Lanka bilateral game, even if it is part of a World Cup, um, is not going to make anywhere near the same kind of money that you'll get if that, that game is played during a World Cup. So money is the first thing. Uh, the second one is that you're assuming that the ICC's role is um, to make sure that the best team wins. I don't, I'm don't, i not sure that's the case in any of these tournaments, really. Um, they're, what they're trying to do is... Well, occasionally try and grow the game, but mostly they're trying to make as much money as possible from these events, um, so that they can, well, in, in, politically take over cricket, but also subsidise the other nations who are struggling um, outside of the big three. Um, and so, uh, those are the two obvious reasons. I think also that sports fans, I, I just, I don't think that will capture cricket fans. If you really going to, if you're really going to do it properly perhaps the best way of doing it is completely changing the schedule and making it a proper um uh you know where each team plays let's say ten games uh in but in one block in in a in a form uh you know four week block or a or a um six week block however that works that's probably the best way of doing it if you if you ask me um and then having a proper final structure a bit like we have now but maybe a final five or something where you know um Oh, does that does that work? I have to go back to my Aussie rules. Uh, uh, the IPL's final structure is based on Aussie rules and rugby league. I have to go back to my final five structure. But um, or oh, you could even have it with a with a final six structure. However, that would work with twenty teams. But all those things are completely positive, are uh, possible. Possible. Um, part of the reason is the ICC is still wedded into this fact of you only you can only play one game at a time, which is idiotic, um, and ha- you know doesn't make any sense now with red button um, situations. Um, uh, um, but that—that's the way I would do it. I don't think I would ever split it up. Oh, BJ's gone anyway. Um, hopefully he's hearing this. Um, I don't think I would ever split it up. I can understand why—why—why uh, why, uh, why you're thinking that way. But I just don't think that's probably in cricket's best interest. As growing the game internationally, making as much money as I can, and also having a bit of a splash. The thing about having a World Cup is it makes. You know, in the USA, they cover it. And in Brazil, it might make news and all these different things. When that's not going to happen if you just have a bunch of bilateral things. Um, so th- there are a lot of advantages to having a World Cup. But you're right. The basic disadvantage is that um, perhaps the best team in this case, you, you might even argue, although, if, uh, you know, if, if Australia somehow rolled Pakistan, you could very rightfully argue that perhaps the two best teams haven't made the finals, uh, haven't made the final. Um, and that won't be, you know, Australia and New Zealand, um, we'll certainly have won a lot of games to have got there, but that, that's kind of how these things happen, unfortunately. <laughs> um, let's have a look. Chris has just said something in the, um, in the chat. Uh, Chris has said, Bowlers like my proctor and so held l describes as bowling off the wrong foot. How possible and effective do you think it would be for a conventional semen developer, a wrong foot variation delivery? I feel like it would absolutely ruin the batter's timing. Yeah, bowling off the wrong foot, for those who don't know, you're not actually bowling off the wrong foot but it it feels like the bowler has come in with like a kink in their action and it feels like they're either bowling well generally earlier sometimes it can feel like they're bowling later so it's, that's what chris is talking about the timing there I, I i think bowlers would really not want to try this because i think it might ruin your normal run-up it's it's a hitch isn't it um it's the same as players who have this little skips um, um so my son at the moment he's he's only seven he just naturally has this skip before he gets to the crease. Um, It's driving my, my father, my father's on the other side of the world, but former bowling coach He's a former bowling coach. It's driving driving him crazy, um, uh, trying to get it away from my son. And, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, it's it's very much something to do, my, my son doesn't do it if there's no stumps there. It's very much something to do with the stumps and the crease and there's a psychology of it and we've never really gone into it. And my guess is the same with the wrong foot. I had a friend who bowled off the wrong foot and had something to do with the way his school, um, where they played cricket in his school, there was like a weird like concrete step and he the only way he could work out how to get over it was obviously through this bowling off the wrong foot um, style. <clears throat> um, and it's, it's really, it is really off-putting, Chris. You, you are uh, right with that. But I don't think it's something that is particularly I, – I wouldn't want to encourage anyone to do it. It's not like bowling with a round arm or bowling from twenty you know, 25 uh, twenty five yards um, like Mark Ward or Kyron Pollard. I really think that bowling off the wrong foot could really screw you up. Now, that's if you're a full-time bowler. If you're a part-timer and you're not particularly a good part-timer, it might be a fun thing to see if you can do it. You know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rian Prague in the IPL. Um, he's the sort of guy I could see just go, well, let's add this to the repertoire, see what happens. ball a 25-yard ball and a ball off the wrong foot and a round-arm ball. Um, he's never going to be a particularly good bowler. So let's see what else he can do. Really good question, though, Chris. Who have we got now here? Ikampf. Yeah, hi, I'm here. How you doing?
5: Uh, good. Uh, first of all, who do you think is going to win? Like, you got the WTC final uh, prediction, Right.
1: Did I? Did I predict I predicted who was gonna be in the final. I don't know if I predicted New Zealand was gonna win, did I? Or maybe I did.
5: You did you did randomly say that New Zealand's gonna win.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. I need you to follow me around and just remind me when I've said things that are correct. Well, I mean, I, I would say that Pakistan's still the, you know, most likely to win. But being that New Zealand's already in the final, <laughs> they are, you know, they've got the highest percentage chance of winning uh, as we currently uh, uh, sit here. Obviously, a lot of this will be um, completely mute by people um, who are listening on the podcast and everything, because um, it won't come out until afterwards. But yeah, it, it, uh, all, things, all things being equal. I would have thought that um, Pakistan is still, if Pakistan beat Australia, then they're the most likely team to uh, win the final um, if both of those, if New Zealand and Pakistan are there. If New Zealand and Australia are there, I probably would favour Australia, I think. But obviously, as we know in this tournament, and as I, probably Chris Jordan found out, you know, the the toss and the Jew do pay, play a role, um, even when you're, you know, playing, even when you're ahead of the game. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, this, this one is so much more random than the chess championship uh, where you, I think you had a, reasonable, I, I had a reasonable thing to look at the Test championship schedules and go the two teams I think most likely to make the, the final are New Zealand and India. And then being that the final was going to be played in England while the ball was zipping around everywhere, I thought New Zealand were probably the more likely team to win that. That's not really the case here. I would say that I think there are things that Pakistan can do that New Zealand don't do. And I think there are things that New Zealand are very good at that Pakistan are as good at or if not better than and so in that case, that's why I think they match up pretty well. But Mitchell Stark takes three wickets in the first over um, and Pakistan aren't going to the, the final anyway. So, you know, all bets are off.
5: Yeah, that's a nice way to think about it. I think that's fair. Yeah, so my question was actually yeah. about uh, bias, just a, a little bit on it. Because I, when I watch cricket sometimes, you know, and have discussions, there's always a, an imbalance, uh, let's say. And I feel well to you know, like my dad hates Kohli. And I, I'm from India and from Bangalore. And half the time I watch cricket with my dad, it's always about why he shouldn't captain or why he should, you know, so the conversation and the thought process gets uh, sidetracked. So I wanted to know how you kind of, uh, what kind of uh, situations you go through with bias and how you manage it.
1: Uh, yeah, I suppose internationally, I became such an international cricket fan at a young age that. I didn't, I I would say I'm probably still biased towards Australia in some ways, but it probably doesn't come out the way that it does for other cricket writers from Australia. For me, it probably comes out in more anger to the Australian team because I think they could be a lot, I suppose because I grew up through an era where I knew what it was like when Australia was ahead of the game in science and ahead of the game in planning and ahead of the game in thinking, to then come out the other side and see them not do any of that, it frustrates the hell out of me. So I'm quite angry at them so there's probably still a bias towards the australian team but it's not in that same way um most of the teams now i like that wasn't probably the case when i started the job but you know you yeah, having met cricketers from around the world and, and different players um and i don't you know there are players from certain teams I, I don't like and we'll get into the personal player bias in a minute but uh from you know i, I got accused on youtube the other day of being biased towards india um Uh, you know, to suck up for views and everything in a piece where I wrote as many words on Namibia, probably did more heavy analysis on the Namibian team. Um, I kind of like most teams. I like the different ways that they come at it. So I'm not too worried about that. I think I'm naturally biased towards the more struggling teams. So, you know, um, when New Zealand and Sri Lanka, knowing where they've come from in cricket, um, you know, West Indies as a redemption story in cricket, even England as a white ball team, I probably got sucked into that. Uh, more than I would have uh, normally. Um, So you certainly get, you know, you certainly have little biases there. You also, as a professional, you get biases with your work, you know, um, that is hard. It's really hard when you, especially when you're doing analysis, because, you know, look at the Indian and the West Indies teams and there's no way for me, and England, yes, you know, uh, losing that semi-final, there's no way for me to look at them and say that they're not probably in the best five teams in this tournament, even if they've played very badly. And so you're thinking... You almost have to take a step back at a certain point and go, am I saying this because I've already said that this is a really good team and now they're playing poorly? Um, or am I saying this because fundamentally I believe this still to be the case? Um, and with the West Indies, when I, when I pulled myself back a little bit, I think I thought I probably got some of them wrong, but I still, think, I still think on paper that they're a really good side, even if they played terrible cricket at this tournament. And the same with India. The player bias is really tough once you get to know players i don't find it that tough when i'm when i'm at a distance i I really i really don't There are obviously players that i like a lot more than other players i think that's just a natural thing you know i've said this before but i think i wrote two hundred and fifty thousand words on brendan mccullum in one year um you know there's absolutely no no doubt that i had a bias towards him you know I still say probably in the last 20 years, there's no player I would turn the TV on for more than Brendan McCullum without a lot of great entertaining cricketers in, a, in that period. But I think I've also been quite savage on him. In fact, Brendan McCullum quotes me in his book as being quite savage on him. So I, I, I think I have the ability to do that. Look, I could probably say this out loud now. Uh, I don't think he'll be listening, but he might be. But Eddie Cowan was very upset with a piece I wrote about him once mine and dan christian's relationship sort of if, if you can call it that you know i'm um, um occasionally relationship um came from a piece i wrote about him that he disagreed with so there's certainly uh you know you have the bias and you have the relationship with people i don't think i have I, I think i think now i what i try and do is use the interest my i try and use my fan interest to learn as much about a player so that even if i'm being positive about them i'm aware of the negatives so for instance the 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 Rohit Sharma piece there's other ways of writing that particular piece that maybe there are people who if they had a bias for or against Rohit Sharma, would have found the exact same information as me and gone in a different direction i try and take the truth and try and take it as far as the truth will take me and then I try and be as, you know, when I'm writing it up, you know, be as objective as possible uh, with each thing. But you do have biases against certain teams, against certain players. There are there are players in my professional life who I do not have particularly good relationships with, right? And I still have to write about them. And um, I'd like to think that even if they think I'm an arsehole because they didn't like something I said in a team meeting once or didn't like the way I, I was involved with, you know, their career once... I'd like to think that if they looked at their work, they'd be like, actually, he hasn't signed me off yet. That's not always going to be the case. There are, there's, there's a particular player, and I won't, I won't name him, who absolutely despises me, never met me. I don't think he's ever met me. Never met me, but he was told of something I said on the radio um, when I worked for TalkSport, and he just went, this guy's the biggest arsehole ever. He's out to get me, blah, blah, blah. It's not the case, right? But there are other players who have probably been very, very, robust with with my criticism who like me and when you know will will contact me and um one of the funniest ones i ever had was chris rogers this is a really random one but i don't know the ashes one year when chris rogers was caught selling mcc tickets before the series to the lord's test and it's a big no-no to do that obviously and so me and george decided that that would be like our punchline at the start of every polite inquiries would be a different joke about chris rogers and I hadn't met him, I don't think, at that stage. I think George... Yes, yeah, so this is a 2013 test, right? Uh, no, it must be 2015. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That was a good series he had. Yeah. And so so we were making fun of him, not as a cricketer, obviously, but as someone who did a very stupid thing and got caught. And he retired. Did he retire not long after that series? I'm trying to remember. Whenever he, he retired. And then we had him... And then I had a cricket show on TalkSport. And the cricket show on TalkSport was, you know, a show where we interviewed people. It was me and John Norman. And on that show, we got him on as a guest. Now, I honestly, I don't think I'd met him before this at all. And he came on and we were talking to him. And then out of nowhere, he just started going on about how he was a big fan of my work, right? <laughs> So there you have a situation where I probably made fun of a guy way more than I probably needed to. Although, you know, it was a ridiculous situation that he put himself in. I think that some people thought I had a bias against him because of that. I know people at Cricket Australia certainly did. They were very upset with the jokes. And yet Chris Rogers is like, oh no, he made some fun of me, but he actually wrote some really good things about my career over time as well. And so I think with that, you have, you you know, those. that's kind of where I would prefer to be, that kind of weird middle ground. I'd, I'd love to have a chat with... Well, I mean, Steve Harmison I'm now friends with. And I, there's three cricketers. I promise you, I've been harder with these cricketers during their careers than almost any modern cricketer. Steve Harmison, Marcus North, and Brad Hodge. Brad Hodge was my coach in my first ever professional job. Marcus North, I've got to know quite well. We've done some commentary together. Me and Harmy have become quite close friends as well, uh, working with TalkSport. And I'm probably way harder on those guys than I have been on any current players but, you know, there, there, there is a, there, it wasn't so much that I had a bias against them. I just, you know, I was wrong in some cases. I was right in some cases. Um, and you, tr- you know, and you try and tell the story the way that you try and tell the story, but look, it's tricky. And the more relationships you have, it's one reason that very early on in my career, I tried to distance myself more from cricketers. It's really hard for the guys who rely on talking to cricketers every day to write about them without bias right? Ethan Strauss did a really good podcast about this um, recently. He's a a basketball, he's now almost like a sports culture writer. Um, uh, He's got a Substack called the House of Strauss and he did a podcast on it. And he was talking about like, when he did something on Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant called him out in a press conference, Andre Iguodala brought him to the side and said, mate, this guy's going to be a star in the NBA for 10 years. And, And Ethan Strauss is like, yeah, but what I wrote, I believed. Right, and I and I think if you could say that whether it goes good or bad, I always uh, what I try and do now, and this wasn't what I did in the first part of my career, but I always do it now. That if you know some angry coach or captain or player um, gets into my inbox or calls me up um, or sees me in an event and brings me over into the corner, that I have the ability to go. Well, this is why I wrote it. Right, this is what I knew at the time. This is the amount of research I did, and this is why I, I wrote what I wrote. Um. And then it's very rare that they're still angry at you or, you know, and, and, and they go in that way. And that goes for players who are angry at you, but also goes for players on the other side. You know, not everything, not everything I write is going to be very, you know, you have to be honest about certain things. Uh, I'm sure that Sun on has read and seen most of the stuff that I've written on him because I think he's that sort of person. I could be wrong. There's a lot of positive stuff in there, but also know that it's very possible that he's only noticed the negative stuff. And I know that because I'm a writer and I've had critiques of my work. And, you know, the first critique I ever had of my book was like, here's a wonderful new writing talent. Wow, where did we find him? And then there was one negative part of that review. And that's all I took with me, right? That's that's how these things are. So even when you're positive about players, they don't always take it um, well. Um, And when you're negative about players, I, I remember actually writing about the women's team, the Australian women's team at the World Cup in 2012, and I was very harsh on them because I thought they were by far the best team in that tournament and I, I didn't think they were playing great cricket and they ended up winning. And they were like, you'll be so harsh on us. And I said, well, the opposite, the opposite is that no one else is actually writing about you properly, right? And that's what I say quite often to cricketers. I said, if, if you just want to write about how you're a good bloke or, or you're in form or you're out of form, there's going to be plenty of pl- people who will be able to write that. I'm going to write something else and you may or may not be happy with it, but it's what I do. And I'm going to back it up by the amount of work I'm going to do. Um, And if you've ever got a problem with it, you can contact me. Um, And quite often they do more often than not, they don't. And, you know, you have different relationships with different players, with different teams, with different managements. Um, These things happen, but bias is part of it. And I think that's one reason that I try and it's probably one thing that I've moved towards more in my sports writing which is getting as much facts and story correct as possible Um, uh, because um, a lot of sports writing can be lazy and can be from a distance. Um, And uh, when I started by necessity, because I was outside the game, I was that writer. And now I really want to get as close to the truth as possible. Me me and Wright Thompson have had this, an argument about this before. Wright Thompson goes, I want to write the truth. And my argument always is that as a sports writer or as any writer, you can't write the truth, right? All you can do is try and get as close to it as possible. Um, and your biases, which can be negatives, are also massive positives in that they take you to areas that people who don't have passion don't go to. So having a having a bias, uh, you know, uh, uh, being interested in a player sometimes leads me to much better work either either way, whether I'm positive for that player or negative for that player. Um, just because it makes me do the work. Um, I'm just like, I'm going to prove that so-and-so is shit, right? And then I go out and I'm like, oh, they are shit at this, but they're not as shit at this as other people have thought or the general perception is. And it's actually worth saying that they are still really good and you can see why teams like them. So that might be something that, you know, I mean, I haven't been very positive about Dawood Milan in my career and I, you know, have backed that up with stats, but when I do the video on Dawood Milan, a lot of Dawood Milan fans really like that video because I looked into his career in a different depth and I also showed both sides of what he has been able to do and sort of how ordinary a cricketer he was and how he's transformed himself into this other player, even if I think his international numbers have a, a tal- a, you know, an element of luck to them. Um, and that's really what you are trying, uh, what I am trying to do. So my bias in that case took me in that direction. Um, and I thought, think I came out of it with a really good piece. I mean, David Milan and his family might agree or disagree, but that's, that's the gig, right?
5: Yeah, that was, yeah. thank you. That was really generous. But just a little, tiny follow-up, like, how, how do you manage it while watching the game? Like if there's a lot of thoughts within you that's pushing towards one particular side, let's say.
1: Uh, I very rarely have to write pieces that are... I've, it's very rare as a sports writer to write a piece that is you're trying to write about both teams at the same time. Does that make sense? So what you're talking about there is more often with Crick Info, I probably know which team they want me to write about beforehand. And so I've probably got that team at the front of my brain, depending on if it's a World Cup, that might be a little bit different, depending on the amount of people that Crick Info would have had at it. But I usually at the ground, I have an idea. But I, I suppose what I'm saying is I take my biases, right? So, so let's look at this New Zealand-England semi-final. Because I wrote it yesterday, and I'm, you know, it's still partially in my head, right? So you look at how New Zealand won that game, and you have to be honest with the fact that Daryl Mitchell and, and Devin Conway probably got them a bit behind the game, and you have to be honest that if Chris Jordan and Johnny Bairstow and Liam Livingston hadn't had a mare in that one particular over, well, not a mare in Bairstow's case, but Livingston probably could have taken that catch, and um, Jordan certainly shouldn't have bowled that many bad deliveries in one over, and if the Jew doesn't come in, New Zealand don't win. Right? That's not a bias. Right. So what have I done now? I th- think I still wrote a piece that New Zealand fans quite like from my, my direct messages that speaks to who they are as a team, but is still deadly honest. So that's not a bias for or against New Zealand. It's this is what has happened. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to build up, whether it's a story or a narrative piece, you know, something like the piece I wrote on the guys from Cool Runnies, um, all the way through to, you know, the most analytical piece that I've probably ever written for someone like Craig Info, right? Regardless of the two extremes of that, what I'm really looking for at that time is a, um, is how do I feel? What is real? And what can I prove, right? Narratives will come and narratives will go, and uh some things that I believe wholeheartedly won't be the same um, midway through a game or halfway through a game, or won't matter as much anymore to me whether whether I sort of like the team or don't like the team or the player from that team who I really like, but the player who's done really well is the one I don't like or don't rate um, I still have to find a way to be able to tell that story um because that's the job right so the biases help and hinder there's a reason that my sports writing course is called Fans with Laptops. It's because I really do believe that the passion of a fan makes you a better sports writer, um, unless you are an investigative journalist. Um, I really think that passion to be able to, you know, have that burning passion of a sport or, you know, um, those sort of things help. And then as long as you are diligent and you like, you 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 know, it's so why I plan my pieces and make sure that they don't just end up being, being me going, this is my favorite player because they're great, right? Like I really try and get to that. Uh, but thank you very much for your question. Um, so as, as you might be aware, people, if you ask me nerdy writer questions, uh, we go deep into the into the thing. Uh, Vijay has just added something here. Surely many players will just use your negative pieces as fuel for them to perform, unless it's Ashwin or Morgan-type character. Um, he's talking about The Last Dance. I remember um, uh, MS uh, calling out Shastri in 2007 game... Um, saying they called the Australia favourites on cricket. Yeah, I think that that definitely happens. Um, Darren Sammy did that with the Mark Nicholas comments in twenty sixteen. Um, I I can't think of a player. It's possible that I know Jason Roy was quite upset with the fact that I would always read out his stats of the ball spinning away from the bat on Talksport. He's got a lot better at that. I don't know. You'd have to talk to Jason Roy if to see if I have any correlation with that. I can't think of a particular player who's ever done that. I've never been called out. I remember, um, yeah, when when the Nuggets beat the Clippers a couple of years ago, and and um, Jamal Murray went through everyone who picked the Clippers, which was like everyone, um, and and like he purpose, he purposely pointed out Zach Lowe um, like, so it was like a bunch of former NBA players and like Zach Lowe, the, the, um, uh, senior uh, NBA writer for ESPN. And I remember thinking, whoa, what would happen if that happened to me? Um, it'd be really, it would be really interesting. I've never had that feedback. Now I know that I have written negatively about players when they've changed their game, but I, 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 I think that's also been in the Morgan and Ashwin way at times, um, I know, look, I've had conversations with players about their game at times after pieces where they've gone, oh, I don't know about this. And I'll be like, well, here's why I wrote this. And then over time, I've seen them improve those things. Yeah. Look, there's, there's no doubt that uh, I'm, I, I use it. Um, you know, here's a very, very funny story. When I started at Crick Info, I think more, uh, very early on. When I was doing freelance for Crick Info, I, did a, I started doing a video series uh, called "The uh, Two Pricks at the Ashes, which we did um, independently. And then uh, I think uh, Wisdom Cricketer put it up on their website. And a senior person from Crick Info is no, no longer with them, not a particularly well-known person, but someone that was you know uh, involved with Crick Info put up a comment on one of the videos slagging me off. And I remembered that and never forgot that person for saying that. I don't think they ever apologized to me for it. And I certainly never brought it up. But it was a big part of me becoming successful at Craig Info was probably spurred on by that one person and their one comment. People do take those sorts of negative things to heart. So I'm sure that things I've written about players uh, and said about players, um, certainly, I, I think now, so certainly since YouTube, the, the different amount of feedback I've had at Craig Info, I think still, I would assume... Cricket info get a lot more reads on my pieces than I get views on my on my YouTube videos, except for the odd video that goes massive. But the amount of feedback I've had from players and coaches from YouTube and watch YouTube compared to what I used to have is astronomically different. So I would think that there are probably players now who see themselves up in some of my graphs and you know and um, see them see some of the videos, maybe even about them. But sometimes even the people who are in the background who might think to themselves, "Oh, well, that's something I've got to change," but. I don't get too much of that at the moment. I usually get, you're wrong about me, um, and here's why. Or I get, um, that's really interesting. Can we talk about this further? Um, uh, that's that's most of the feedback I get. Very angry. Um, and then they always turn around when you chat to them like humans. Or, this is interesting. I didn't know anything about this. No one's ever told me this. Can we chat more? Okay. Ants. Oh. Yeah, hi, Dad. How you doing? What's your question?
2: Uh, so my question was... Uh... What do you think about the IPL system for a tournament like a World Cup where you have the qualifiers and the eliminator instead of the semifinals?
1: I don't know if you were on the chat earlier. I've already said that that's probably what I would do.
2: Ah, okay, thank you then.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it, may, it makes more sense. I'm not sure we'll ever do it, but it's such a random game, T20. I just don't think having a tournament of this kind of structure... Um, is helpful, and I think you could have a, a good short league um, where, you know, well, uh, to win this tournament at the moment where well, you need to play seven games, get rid of the stupid thing at the start of the tournament, allow for two games to be played at the same time, uh, don't have the teams travel um, massive amounts um, during the tournament. Um, it's very possible to have a proper league, I would have thought.
2: So why don't you think the ICC has implemented that? Like, it's been happening in the IPL for so long.
1: Well, it's been happening before the IPL, hasn't it? Um, uh, you know, uh, the leagues aren't particularly uh, new. I mean, one day domestic cricket in in Australia. The, I mean, the the um, the, the blast. Um, you know, there's plenty of places where they've had leagues. Uh, I just think they think a World Cup isn't that. I think that's probably the main reason. Uh, weirdly, I mean, you could argue that the um, that uh, other than the actual final system, that the ten team World Cup strategy that they like is kind of a leak. Uh, with everyone playing everyone. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think they've really thought about it that much. Also, they, they've been locked in um, to this other format, which is stupid, and hopefully we will move beyond. Um, but, yeah, um, I think that's that's what will happen in the future. But um, thank you very much for your question. Right, I think we've got one more. Anav. Hey, Jared. Hey, mate, what's your question?
3: Yeah, uh, my question is, uh, is that... Uh... Like, I'm right now 21. I've been following cricket ever since I was 10. And uh, since that last 10, 11 years, every year I hear that test cricket is dying, test cricket is dying. It is not died yet. It may be prospering more. Maybe not at the speed everyone expected, but it is prospering. Do you think that this constant lament of the death of test, uh, test cricket is more of a British component of cricket, like British humor. Mm-hmm. People say that, you know, it's sardonic. It. No. Because I heard a podcast with you with Wright Thompson, and he's an American. So I thought he's a bit optimistic. He was quite optimistic about the future of cricket than people at Wiston. So, like, do you think that this is a British component of the cricket?
1: No. I, I mean, the Wright Thompson thing's really interesting because um, me and him have talked about this a lot. There's a few different elements to it. For instance, People were saying that we didn't have enough time to play test cricket when it was played over three days in England in the eighteen hundreds, right? So it never fit into society. You know, it's it's a bit like um, it's a bit like the joke with golf. Like, you know, uh, who on earth would would um, would buy golf if you were to sell it to them now? We're going to get a bunch of fat, semi-athletic people, um, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna take up huge bits of land, uh, which you're never going to be able to make any money off. Um, and it's going to be a game for just uh, a certain kind of a wealthy person in more countries than not, right? It's like if you were to starting today, you wouldn't design test cricket or golf, right? But there's also a reason why golf and test cricket still exist. And, um, and the other one is that as, uh, there's always been this constant looking back in cricket to when the golden era was, right? So it's like the actual era that you're in is always, oh, it's, You should have, you should have looked at it beforehand, you know, and you get that all the way back to Hambledon, right? Because was Hambledon was like a bunch of posh people in the middle of nowhere playing some cricket and they, and the only reason we know about it really is because someone wrote a book about it, right? (laughs) Um, there are plenty of posh places that played cricket before and the, the laws of the game came out of Hambledon, but they didn't invent the laws of the game. Many of those laws already existed, um... And then you have that next era of, of cricket when it was great and, and you have you have people when the overarm bowling happens and round arm bowling happens, people going, Oh, you should have seen cricket before then. Right. <laughs> and then you have and then you have that era where test cricket happens and everyone goes, Oh, well, you know, test cricket's good, but you should have been around when first class cricket was king. And then you have the golden era. Oh, the golden era. That was when that was the last time that people truly played for the love of the game. And so, well, no, they didn't. And I think a lot of the narrative 90s. Oh, no, you get it 90. Forget the 90s, man. Um, if you talk to cricket fans, they'll tell you that the 70s and 80s were the, the older generation. will tell you 70s and 80s were king. The 90s is when the helmets came in. You're just now starting to see that the generation of people looking back to the 90s, right? Before that, we just got rid of the people that couldn't stop talking about the 70s and 80s, right? And there's still a few people hanging around talking about the 50s and 60s. The 50s weren't even particularly good, right? Um... And so the 1950s is where the narrative of the gentleman's game comes back up and, um, uh, you know, uh, the spirit of cricket becomes really big. That comes out of this longing for the game before the war. So really before World War One, really the, the W.G. Grace era and all this sort of stuff. And the truth is that W.G. Grace certainly bet on cricket games. Um, he certainly fixed cricket games, whether he fixed them in the way that we fix them in modern terms, but he fixed them in a way that he wanted them to be fixed. he cheated the laws. he also pushed the laws to incredible degrees um and he wasn 't the only one there are plenty there was match fixing going on in the early 1800s in cricket uh you know in, in the gold, in one of the first golden eras uh, as i 've said before, the golden era of amateurism and victor trumper victor Trumper didn 't go on a tour because he had a fight over money with cricket Australia or the a c b s they probably were at that point um this whole idea of spirit of cricket, it, look, it was looking back at this amateur form of cricket when amateurs were scammers, right? They were rich, posh scammers who quite often got in the team because of who their father or grandfather was. Um, uh, and, um, and they made the Northerners' Bowl in the UK. Um, when they say cricket is a gentleman's game, they don't mean cricket is a game for men. I'm not a gentleman. A gentleman is someone who comes from a particular kind of family, Right. And so we've always had this thing of looking back and realistically, you, you know, if you look at my podcast, the, um, double century, or if you follow Ab- Abhishek Mukherjee or any of the great historians out there, you will find that cricket's always been exactly the same. It's always had scammers and it's always had dodgy people. And it's always had conspiracies and it's always had controversy and it's always had racism and it's always had sexism. It's always had all the normal things that society had because cricket was part of society. Right. But we have this ability to look back and think of how great it was. When, was. when was test cricket actually a brilliant form of cricket where there were lots of teams who were really good at it and it made a lot of money? Perhaps you could say the 90s. I'm not sure we made that much money off cricket in the 90s. We certainly didn't make enough money off cricket in the 90s to allow for cricket to grow to non-traditional cricket places within our major cricket countries. Forget Forget associate nations even. But we didn't make enough money then for that to happen. Look, nostalgia is a powerful thing. It's why conservative governments do so well, um, even when they're not particularly good. You can always tell people that things used to be better because people generally remember the, the best of days. You know, um, they don't really remember all the, the other things. And that's why, you know, you see now there's so many, there's there's such a, um, a throwback to, uh, throwback again, oh no, no, you know, like a, uh, like almost like a cultural divide with historians. So, like, oh, stop trying to rewrite history. Most historians are just trying to actually write history or accurately write history, okay? And um, and what you have is a bunch of people who don't want to be told what happened. People don't. English people don't want to be told that Christchurch, uh, Christchurch. I'm Um, Churchill, um, had flaws because they'd already made him into this huge historical figure in their head. And that's the same with, you know, George Washington. People don't want to hear about him having slave teeth. Um, You know, people don't want to hear about Captain Cook in Australia being a horrendous human being. Um, All these sorts of things. But that is the truth, right? And I would say that the 70s and 80s and 90s is the golden era of international cricket because that's where international cricket becomes international cricket, right? I think that's – you cannot deny that. Up until that point, we really didn't have that many teams who were any good. That's the period where, you know, Sri Lanka come along, where Pakistan become good, where the West Indies become good, where New Zealand become good, where India become good, uh, where Zimbabwe arrive. You know, all these sorts of different things happen in that one little period. That's the birth of international cricket. But when you look at test cricket, we make more money off test cricket now. It has a wider base of more teams playing. I think the quality of test cricket is phenomenal, um, considering the amount of teams that now currently play it. Uh, More people follow it than have ever before. Um, I'll go back to, you know, there are entire test series where between absolute great teams that have almost no coverage because Australia or England didn't play in them and latterly India didn't play in them. Uh, That doesn't really happen anymore. Great test series generally now get covered more and more, you know, Crickinfo and Crickbuzz and Twitter and social media and streaming and all these sorts of places. You know, technology has allowed us to see all this great cricket I think test cricket's in a phenomenal place. The problem is that goes back to the first question we had today. Who's really running cricket? Why is it being run? And all this sort of stuff. If you're not running the sport correctly, that's where test cricket is in danger. And it is in danger of being becoming a second-class sport within its own sport, right? Um, that is definitely a danger. But I would say that it's probably in some ways also never been stronger than it is today. It's m- maybe been more popular in certain countries than it has been before. But I don't think it's ever been stronger or bigger or more lucrative or more important to more places than it is right now. Um, and, you know, that was one thing that we really wanted to say in Death of a Gentleman was this whole thing of Test Cricket is dying is it was kind of being either allowed to die or in some places even forcibly killed. I've said this a million times before. There is so much money that is not made in Test Cricket that can be made that could, we, you know, that could um, cement Test Cricket's future if they were really trying to do that. But unfortunately, that's not exactly what anyone is doing. And with no one in charge, we're sort of just tingling around and occasionally it will look like it could disappear. It, it is possible that Test Cricket could disappear. I just don't think a sport that is worth as much money as it, um, I, th- I think Test Cricket on its own is probably worth more than rugby union as a sport. So you'd have to be bloody stupid to let that because uh, that kind of money go would be my guess. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be doing that. Um, but that's why we need really good administration. And, and sadly we do not. Thanks for no worries. Thank you very much for your question. All right. We'll leave it there. Everyone, everyone who wanted to ask a question got to do with that, except for probably the people who are on Android and I never saw that was a really good questions. So I really enjoyed that. Thank you to everyone who put their hand up. Thank you to the Patreon people who make this podcast possible. So go over to Patreon, Jared Kimber. And if you want to support this podcast, you can. Thanks to Bodyline T-shirts. Remember, if you want a 20% discount on your genital shaving um, equipment, uh, lawnmower4.0, go to manscaped.com, put in the code REDINCA, uh, get 20% off, free worldwide shipping. And you can do buy me a coffee and everything. Thanks to everyone following all the work I've been doing during the World Cup. And for those who are on Patreon... If you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our Discord, which is generally where I can be found chatting during games these days, and um, there is other things on the Discord if you're that kind of person and you want to be involved on that server. But thank you to everyone, and I will talk to you again on the next podcast.
4: Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Living a busy, full life? MitoQ is a science based cell health supplement that helps your cells generate renewable daily energy. Discover more at mitoQ.com. That's M I T O Q.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.